Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, from the town where the brown ale comes from. More about the bees. Yes, those damn bees that uh, pollinate, what is it, two-thirds of our food supply, food crops. More than two out of five American honeybee colonies died last year, or in the past year, according to the Associated Press. The worst die-off was in the summer, which doesn't normally happen. Bees are usually busy surfing. Since since April 2014, beekeepers lost 42% of their colonies, the second highest lost rate in nine years, according to an annual survey conducted by a partnership that includes the Department of Agriculture. I want to be partners with them. Don't you? What we're seeing with this bee problem is just a loud signal that there's some bad things happening with our agro-ecosystems, says a co-author of the study. Quote, we just happen to notice it with a honeybee because they're so easy to count. Unquote. Well, there's your solution. Bees, if you don't want to be alarming people, just be harder to count. After a colony dies, beekeepers then split their surviving colonies, starting new ones. The numbers go back up again, say the authors. But what shocked the entomologists is that this is the first time they've noticed bees dying more in the summer than in the winter. 27.4% of their colonies were lost this past summer. Seeing massive colony losses in summer is like seeing, quote, a higher rate of flu deaths in the summer, said one of the researchers. You just don't expect colonies to die at this rate in the summer. Maybe the bees just wanted to give us something new, you know, a surprise, a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, we hear a lot sometimes about the um, threats to human rights in various parts of the world. Almost never do Americans, I think, hear about them, those threats in uh, Burma. Or is it Myanmar? Or is it Burma? The official American institution that memorializes the Holocaust sounded the alarm this week on the threat of a genocide facing the beleaguered Rohingya of Burma, one of the world's most neglected communities. Report published by the Center for the Prevention of Genocide, a wing of the Holocaust Memorial Museum, charted the persecution, violence, and systematic discrimination endured by this Muslim minority, warning it was a population at grave risk for additional mass atrocities and even genocide. That's a quote. The plight of the 1.3 million Rohingya is well documented. The majority live in Burma on the western border with Bangladesh and India, even though they can trace their roots, many of them to Burma, a number through a number of generations, they're not recognized as citizens of the Burmese state, which insists on classing them as Bengali, a designation that suggests they may be interlopers from across the border. They struggle, therefore, for access to basic state services. The partial democratization that has taken place in Burma has not helped them. In recent years, the climate of hostility has, according to the report, led the Rohingya being subject to dehumanization. Well, given the state of humans, that might be an honor. Through rampant hate speech, the denial of citizenship, and restrictions on freedom of movement, in addition to a host of other human rights violations. I was a guest host of that one time. Ethnic violence in 2012 led to tens of thousands of Rohingya fleeing to squalid camps. Countless others have chosen to leave the country altogether, sometimes at great cost. The waters of the 
Andaman Sea and the jungles of Thailand still hold the unclaimed corpses of many of them, whose vulnerable position on the margins of the Burmese state have made them prey to human traffickers. Quote, we're very cautious when we invoke the term genocide, knowing it can be quite polarizing, sometimes even unhelpful, says the center's director. But there's a combination of factors, many of which you saw in 1930s Germany and 1990s Rwanda that are quite concerning. Unquote. These are the same people who are crowded into boats by human traffickers, fishing boats headed for Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia, all three of which countries have pledged to turn them away. Yes, it's a wonderful world we live in, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, welcome to the show.
From Newcastle, England, of all places. Yes, I'm Harry Shearer with this week's edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we are all appalled, aren't we? At the inhumanity all around us, especially that though, uh, that of our enemies, like ISIS or IS or ISAL. Why can't they even just decide on a name? That's barbaric all by itself. But, you know, they're they're hideous, inhumane treatment of prisoners and just people who live in the area they control. Thank goodness we have freedom-loving friends like the folks in Saudi Arabia, which this week we learn is all set to behead a man and publicly display his headless body for speaking his mind. Vox.com reports that Sheikh Nimr Bakir al-Nimr why, his name's almost a palindrome. He's an internationally respected Shia cleric, however, was sentenced to death for disobeying the ruler, inciting sectarian strife, and encouraging leading and participating in demonstrations. Those were his crimes. He participated in nonviolent protests, calling for the fall of the House of Saud. Ooh. The uh, scheduling of the execution has not been announced yet. According to Amnesty International, Saudi Arabia executed at least 90 people last year, more people than any other country except Iran and China. Most death sentences in Saudi Arabia are carried out by beheading in public. 
says uh, Amnesty's Saudi Arabia specialist. Sometimes the Saudi government defaces the corpses afterwards. The death penalty database found that reports that Saudis have exposed the body with head sewn back on to public indignity, including crucifixion after execution. That's just a little bit of excess completionism, isn't it? But it's nice that they sew the head back on. Because there are our friends, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. So sorry. First of all, ABC's George Stephanopoulos. Now I want to address some news you may have seen about me. Over the last several years, I've made substantial donations to dozens of charities, including the Clinton Global Foundation. Those donations were a matter of public record, but I should have made additional disclosures on air when we covered the foundation. And I now believe that directing personal donations to that foundation was a mistake. Even though I made them strictly support work done to stop the spread of AIDS, help children, and protect the environment in poor countries, I should have gone the extra mile to avoid even the appearance of a conflict. I apologize to all of you for failing to do that. The extra mile, huh? All right, then. Run the extra mile. And uh, be sure to hydrate. A a Cambodian TV channel faces a social media backlash after it tricked a 13-year-old girl into thinking she'd be reunited with her mother, but instead met a man in drag. Autumn Allen, a 13-year-old singer who moved to Cambodia with her father when she was six, was due to meet her estranged mother. The emotional moments leading up to the reunion turned out to be a bizarre Mother's Day prank, and producers of the show, like it or not, faced outrage from social media users. This is Cambodia, ladies and gentlemen. We won that war, I guess. According to the Phnom Penh Post, can I pop more peas? The Phnom Penh Post, the young singer had not met her mother for more than a decade. She told told the presenter her dream to meet her mother would come true, but it emerged that meeting her mother was not on the cards. Instead, cross-dressing comedian and the show's judge, Chuap Roland, graced the stage. She told the newspaper she was initially disappointed, but Roland made me laugh, so I had fun doing the show. The channel has subsequently apologized for the joke, which social media followers labeled as brainless. Well, it's TV. R&B singer Kelly Price said she was denied her prescription for painkillers by a CVS pharmacist who told her he couldn't fill certain prescriptions after midnight because the store was located in the wrong neighborhood. She went to the CVS in Carson, that is uh, southwest of downtown Los Angeles, this week about 1 a.m. to fill a prescription for painkillers she planned to take for a dental procedure. Ouch! She posted about the incident on Facebook saying this wasn't her usual pharmacy, but that her pharmacy had been out of stock. Imagine my surprise and aggravation when I was greeted with the partitions at the drop-off window and after flagging down the pharmacist on duty being told he would not fill my prescription because they didn't fill certain prescriptions after midnight because of the neighborhood the store is located in. She eventually found the manager of the store who convinced the pharmacist to fill the prescription after about half an hour of bargaining, arguing. Next day, Price said she called CVS corporate management to file a complaint. CVS eventually apologized to her Wednesday evening in a second Facebook post. She revealed that she spoke with the area vice president. She said he apologized about the incident at the pharmacy and told her it was not CVS's policy and the partitions should not have been at the windows. There will be an internal investigation. CVS told CBS 
yes, CVS talks to CVS, that it was not company policy to refuse certain prescriptions after midnight. Deadline Jefferson City, Missouri, House Speaker John Deal is attempting to repair his reputation and retain his powerful position while seeking forgiveness for what he describes as poor judgment he displayed in a relationship with a capital intern. Spelled capital intern. He's a Republican. That's not really important, is it? He apologized for his actions following a newspaper report that he'd exchanged sexually charged text messages with a college student who had been serving as a legislative intern. He said he would not resign and appeal to colleagues for their continued support. Democratic lawmakers had launched an effort to try to remove him from the speakership. I apologize for the poor judgment I displayed that put me and those closest to me in the situation, Deal said in a written statement. After he shut himself for hours in his Capitol office meeting privately with staff, I also regret that the woman has been dragged into this situation. The Kansas City Star had released a story accompanied by screenshots of apparent electronic messages between Deal and a college student who was a Capitol intern. The messages included some sexually suggestive discussions and revealed what the Star described as a flirty rapport. Suggesting an intimate relationship, Deal did not specifically mention the text messages in either his written statement or in comments to reporters. I apologize to my caucus, he said, and to people in my life who were important to me. It was very regrettable. It was a stupid thing to do, and I'm sorry. The intern, who no longer works at the Capitol, declined to comment. In an April 30th interview with presidential hopeful Senator Ted Cruz, Bloomberg Politics guy who works for it anyway, Mark Halpern, requested the senator do his, quote, very good and very respectful imitation of Senator Bernie Sanders, another presidential candidate. Cruz declined. He also declined to welcome Sanders to the race, quote, en espanol. I'm going to stick to English, but I appreciate the invitation, senor, responded Cruz. Halpern also asked Cruz whether he'd listed himself as Hispanic in his applications to Princeton and Harvard Law School. He asked him whether he had a favorite Cuban food or favorite Cuban singer. The name of the show, by the way, on which this discussion occurred, was, and is, quote, with all due respect. Criticism piled on Halpern, so he has apologized. Quote, we wanted to talk with Senator Cruz about his outreach to Latino voters the day after he spoke to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. My intent was to give the senator a chance to speak further about his heritage and personal connections to the community through some casual questions. I rushed through the questions, and that was a mistake. It led to poor tone and timing. I also understand why some felt the questions were inappropriate. After, as for asking Senator Cruz to welcome Senator Sanders to the race in Spanish, that was meant to be the type of lighthearted banter that he's done with us before on the show. In no way was I asking Senator Cruz to prove he was an authentic Latino. I apologize to those who were offended and to Senator Cruz. I promise I will work to make the tone and questions better next time. Unquote Mark Halpern. Work on your tone, babe. A bus company in the United Kingdom apologized this week for an advertising campaign that went awry. New Adventure Travel put ads on their buses featuring images of young men and women along with the saying, quote, ride me all day for three pounds. Some people found the ads and their sexual overtones to be offensive. Are you serious about your ride me all day naked woman campaign? Shame on you, said one tweet. The slogan of Ride Me All Day for Three Pounds, whilst being a little tongue-in-cheek, was in no way intended to cause offense to either men or women, said the company, and if the advert has done so, then we apologize unreservedly. There has been, certainly been no intention to objectify either men or women. Unquote. What about the buses? The posters were removed from the buses within 24 hours because of the complaints. 
Dayline Stone Mountain, Georgia, the private school principal who gained national attention for a racially charged comment she made during a graduation ceremony has been fired. Dr. Heidi Anderson, chairman of the board of chair of the board of directors at TNT Academy, wrote in a letter to the NAACP, the board voted to dismiss school director Nancy Gorduke. During last Friday's graduation ceremony, the principal accidentally dismissed attendees before the school valedictorian could give a speech as people began filing out of the room. She asked them to come back then, said, look who's leaving, all the black people. She later apologized to parents in an email saying, quote, the devil was in the house and came out from my mouth. I deeply apologize for my racist comment and hope that forgiveness is in your hearts. The devil made her do it. So... I guess the school board has also fired the devil. Uh, Deadline Washington, an Orthodox rabbi and former Towson University professor who secretly videotaped women as they prepared for a Jewish ritual bath, was sentenced to six and a half years in prison after a Washington, D.C. Superior Court judge hood 90 minutes of emotional testimony from victims. Bernard Barry Frundel was taken into custody immediately after the sentence was handed down. Many in the packed courtroom clapped as the man who was considered an authority on Jewish conversion was escorted away. He pleaded guilty in February to 52 counts of voyeurism, admitting he videotaped dozens of women at the national capital mikveh in Washington. A mikveh is a ritual bath used by married Orthodox women and converts to Judaism. He used tiny cameras hidden in items, including a clock and a tissue box, to record the women as they undressed and prepared. Alprin, the judge, called the case one of classic abuse of power and violation of trust, the defendant essentially lured the victims to the mikveh, the judge said. Frundel addressed the court before the judge sentenced him. He exhaled deeply. I'm sorry, truly sorry, he said. I apologize from the depths of my being. He said he's been in intensive therapy for months and felt a sense of relief when he was arrested. Several women said the rabbi also exploited them in other ways, pressuring them to do unpaid clerical and household work for him. He didn't apologize for that, apparently. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, apropos of Men of the Cloth. News of the Godly. A suspended Connecticut Roman Catholic priest who authorities say dealt pounds of methamphetamine and bought a sex shop intending to launder his drug money why not a laundry? We'll spend another three years in prison after being sentenced. 75 people were in court to support Monsignor Kevin Wallen, 63 years old, dubbed Monsignor Meth in some media reports. The judge called it an unprecedented turnout for a drug trafficking sentencing. Wallen has already served 28 months. He'll be in prison three more years. My shame remains intense. I'm sorry does not convey the remorse I feel, he said. The day I was arrested was a very good day. All this arrest relief. I cannot ignore your decision to infect your community with methamphetamine, the judge had said. And, Dayline Syracuse, the Catholic bishop of that city, has decided not to publicize the names of the 11 priests in his diocese against whom there's credible evidence that they molested children. Bishop Robert Cunningham will stick with the diocese's practice of withholding the names from the public, said a spokeswoman. The diocese will publicly confirm one of the priest's names if a victim names him first. Cunningham told Syracuse.com he was considering making the names of the priests public, as at least 27 dioceses 
across the country now do. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We offer you our hand Let us try We can help to make things grow Help to make the waters flow To save our precious land Let us try To help you clean up all our waters Cause to try is to succeed This is Lachelle, and what's up with our friends at the United States Army Corps of Engineers? Well, a former deckhand for the Army Corps on a Mississippi River vessel, the motor vessel Mississippi, says he was terminated because he reported on illegal alcohol consumption and racism on his ship. The Mississippi's core job is to move barges, equipment, and supplies, but it also serves the Mississippi River Commission as an inspection boat and for meetings in the board's hearing room, which also has a dining It also has a dining room. Uh, the vessel is a giant floating ambassador, says a civil rights attorney retained by the whistleblower. Uh, a a giant floating ambassador used to transport politicians and other important individuals and show them a good time on the river. Bellamy reported he began seeing bottles of beer and wine stored in the refrigerator of the vessel and said he could smell alcohol in the breath of superiors. I've also witnessed crew members consume alcohol while on duty, he stated in a complaint he filed with his union Official policy of the Coast Guard and NOAA strictly prohibits consumption and possession of alcohol on government vessels. He also accused the ship's white officers of engaging in racist and demeaning behavior. They had all black employees wearing white gloves and serving all white passengers during a Mississippi River Commission trip, treating the black employees as if they were slaves there to serve their white masters. The motor vessel Mississippi, says the attorney, has a long history of racism issues. She said she was involved in a settlement a few years ago with the Army Corps after a mannequin was hanged in effigy on the same ship. Bellamy forwarded photos of the alcohol he found on the Mississippi to the Coast Guard. A few days after he sent the photos, the uh, ship's captain brandished a letter reportedly saying this letter allowed alcohol to be consumed during the entire trip of the Mississippi River Commission, but he refused to show Bellamy the letter. It was never posted or made available to the crew. And then, shortly afterwards, Bellamy said he would be put on non-paid status due to the seasonal nature of his job. He informed the Army Corps he would be reporting for military reserve duty during that period he was laid off. And during the time he was on reserve, the Army Corps of Engineers sent him his termination notice. He believes he was terminated in retaliation for his blowing the whistle on alcohol consumption on the Mississippi. In 1997, the Army Corps paid a settlement of $1 million to a group of African-American deckhands on another ship who also accused the agency of discrimination and racism. 
One complainant in that settlement told the New York Times shortly after the settlement was reached, conditions on that boat were like, quote, modern-day slavery. An email to the Army Corps of Engineers' public affairs office received no response. Meanwhile, in Brownsville, Texas, Cameron County's rail project is running into new problems because the county isn't in compliance with the Army Corps of Engineers' wetland mitigation. The area selected for the rail project was part of a wetland. To get permission to build there, the county had to create another wetland for wildlife to inhabit. Yeah, that's easy for humans to do. The county spent more than $100,000 planning and preparing the alternative wetland location. A year later, the water in the wetland dried up. Not so wet now. And the Army Corps of Engineers won't sign off on the project until the county fixes the problem. To see how tough the Army Corps of Engineers is about the whole issue of wetlands mitigation, mitigation, I suggest a book called Paving Paradise, describing the Army Corps' three-decade-long job policing wetland mitigation and the no-net-loss-of-wetlands policy in Florida, resulting in (laughs) a massive net loss of wetlands. And a federal judge Friday refused to block the Army Corps' plan to kill 11,000 double-crested cormorants at the mouth of the Columbia River. Once the Corps receives final approval from the Agriculture Department, the agency can officially start culling the birds. Yes, you call it killing, they call it culling. The Audubon Society says snipers with night vision goggles and high-powered rifles will shoot birds from elevated platforms as the birds care for their eggs and young on their nesting grounds. This is all to try to save some salmon. Opponents say the agency is not doing enough, the agency being the Army Corps, to modify operations of its hydroelectric dams along the Columbia River system, which have historically been blamed for salmon deaths. But let them try to kill the birds. The United States Army Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. You, um, you know by this time, probably, that the Senate failed in its first attempt to grant fast-track authority to the president to complete the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement with about a dozen Asian Pacific nations. They will try again, apparently, this week. Fast-track authority allows the administration to submit this agreement, this uh, multilateral agreement to uh, the Congress for merely an up-and-down vote, allowing no amendments. And um, the controversy over the agreement is multifold. First, as we discussed on this program last week, the the um, restrictions covering the ways in which Congress people can actually see the text being negotiated uh, very much resemble the way um, members of the Intelligence Committee were allowed to view the uh, secret legal opinions regarding the CIA's detainee interrogation programs. No notes, no staffers. Can't talk about it outside the uh, the special room. And so some of the critics have accused the administration of keeping the text for all intents and purposes secret, which President Obama, you may have noticed, denied vociferously in attacks on his critics, including Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, whom he called just wrong for her criticisms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which also contains a, um, a provision called Investor State Dispute Settlement, which allows corporations whose profit expectations 
have been diminished or damaged by laws or regulations of member states to sue those governments, state or local governments, federal government in our case, in special tribunals whose judges are lawyers who otherwise work for those corporations. The president, as I say, has been on the warpath against his critics, most of them his fellow Democrats. You know, the professional liberals are at it again. Been doing this since I don't know when. They act like they don't even know I'm their best friend. But in the end game, you gotta know your friend's name. We got a trade deal on the table. You've probably heard about it on cable. Or better yet, on the internet. I'll let you know what's in it. You know, when I'm able. But when I say we've learned the lessons of NAFTA, those folks to my left really do have to cool their laughter. After the vote, I may have to take the professional liberals down just a peg. Because I am too proud to beg. in there that might sound transgressive, that might arouse the progressive heart of a party, the part that's just getting too aggressive for its own damn good. You gotta take your cap and doff it when a company expects a profit, when regulations or laws turn out to be flaws to cause a pause in that expectation. Of course they can sue to stop it. If you can't get the profit you expect, the whole economy is wrecked. Their goal the jobs, the left demands, that's what they don't understand. And right now, we can't explain it. The time to debate it is when it's too late to change it. The time to drink is when all you've got in the bottle is a drag. And yes, I am too proud to beg. an artisan to craft a measure this bipartisan. And nobody likes his handiwork spoiled, the waters roiled by some liberals playing hard-boiled. The trade cake is baked, and if the unions bellyache, let them eat steak. This is just a delayed wake for the wing of the party that has to break before it can fly straight. Yes, this is how the hope dream ends. you got to be nicer to your enemies than your friends. Because wrong-headed treaties may be boners. But presidential libraries still need donors. You know, someone's going to give an arm and a leg. So i got to be too proud to beg. by Jim Eversall Jr. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the draft contract for the 2020 Summer Games, reviewed by Boston's mayor before he committed the city to its own 2024 bid, would 
put Tokyo taxpayers on the hook for hidden costs and ensure a hefty payday for the International Olympic Committee. This according to the Boston Herald. City officials released a copy of the 81-page Tokyo 2020 host city contract this week following months of pressure from the newspaper and after the city and the group behind the push for Boston's games had originally claimed that the contract were the property of the IOC and therefore not public. If they're not doing anything wrong, of course they have nothing to hide. The contract offers a few into the types of stipulations the IOC demands, including the city committee shall bear all taxes, including custom duty or indirect taxes, that visiting athletes and IOC officials and staffers would otherwise be subject to while in the country. All guarantees the host city and committee make to the IOC in its application shall be binding. The IOC is under no obligation to make any financial contributions of its own. But it will get 7.5% of all gross revenues and ticket sales and 20% of any surplus revenue. And the organizing committee would fork over another $15 million for the rights to the Paralympics. The IOC's contract language makes clear that taxpayers on the hook if things don't go according to boosters' plans, according to critics of the Olympics in Boston. The United States Olympics Committee says the contract was not a reliable model for the 2024 Games contract because that pact will be based on a newly adopted Olympic agenda. The uh, spokesman for the IOC says the governing body is completely happy and relaxed that the document was released after months of refusing to. Because transparency. The uh, lawyer for the Boston 2024 bid group wrote to the Secretary of State of Massachusetts last month to keep the document secret and to demand that city officials return confidential records to further keep them out of the public eye. The U.S. Olympic Committee and Boston officials decided to release the contract before a ruling was made by the Secretary of State. It's the Olympics, ladies and gentlemen. It's a movement, and we all need one every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of AFPAC. The uh, news organization ProPublica has a report this week about the heart of the military's hearts and minds strategy in Afghanistan. The delivery of cold, hard cash. During a decade of war, the Pentagon gave more than $2 billion to commanders to spend as they wished on a broadly defined grab bag of urgent humanitarian needs. Those two words are in quotes. The goal was to gain support from the locals for both the U.S. military and the nascent Afghan government. It was, according to the military, and this is a quote, money as a weapon system. $182,000 spent on sweaters. A motorcycle shop owner received a micro-grant of $900 to replace equipment stolen by the Taliban. Hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on large projects, such as a hospital in a rural area. The Afghan money pot sprang out of a case the military made in Iraq in 2003. The U.S. could douse violent insurgencies by buying the local population what it lacked, including electricity, jobs, roads, schools, even chickens. The cash could become ammunition, said now-retired General David Petraeus, he who leaked confidential information to his girlfriend, 
slash biographer. Critics have questioned whether the program bought anything greater than the projects themselves, since the insurgency is still thriving, as is corruption. But the MO is familiar. It was plane loads full of United States cash that came over to Iraq during the early days of uh, Paul Bremer's reign as the viceroy after the invasion. And it was plain loads of cash from the CIA that went to former Afghan President Hamid Karzai to uh, try to make him act nice to us. Arriving in Iraq Had a little problem Tough not to crack Had the 86 the army Tell the bureaucrats goodbye He's running the whole country How's he gonna get by? An aircraft packed with dollars Bills filling every seat No need for inside movies Not a bite to eat Moolah riding first class Greenbacks with a free pass Money on a crazy commute A jet plane full of loot General Dave Petraeus Smart without a doubt Had a little fire They had to put right out Soon he's getting violent Cause the Shias ran the show What could Dave do for the Sunnis To convince them not to blow Feeling useless, money doesn't drink. Legal love me tender to buy a brief surrender. Cash to tell the Kurds, please don't shoot. A jet plane full of loose. A jet plane full of loose. Jet plane full of loose. in turmoil Iran will not concede Yanks need a persuader that's behind but still can lead You can spend them You can save them You can send them to Belize They don't make you love Americans but they've got a way to please
don't ask why. Extreme is still like Cadillacs and a condo in the sky. Seeing money in a seatbelt has got to make your heart melt. Simoleons like to stay but got to scoot. On a jet plane full of loot. Millions, billions, trillions. There's just no time to compute. That jet plane full of loot. Jet plane full of loot. Jet plane full of loot. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? I sure hope you will. Mm hmm. The potato leafhopper is a tiny insect, barely half the size of a grain of rice, with a bright lime green color. This pest causes big headaches for farmers across the eastern United States, feeding voraciously on many crops, including potatoes, green beans, and alfalfa, causing untold millions of dollars in damage every year. Now a study by entomologists at the University of Maryland and Queens College at City University of New York suggests that climate warming could be making the problem worse. Using data that span more than six decades, the team found that polite potato leafhoppers arrive an average of 10 days earlier than in the early 1950s, and their infestations are more severe in the warmest years. These effects correspond to an overall increase in years with warmer than average temperatures over the same time period. The results published in the journal PLOS1. Shellfish. Ladies and gentlemen, sea creatures of all kinds are set to shrink as the world's oceans become more acidic. That's the warning given by an international group of biologists who've charted the likely impact of rising carbon dioxide levels on marine life. The group reveals not only are hundreds of marine species likely to be wiped out as more and more carbon dioxide is dissolved in the Earth's oceans, this according to The Guardian, but also that creatures that do survive in particular, those with shells, such as clams, oysters, and snails, will be left puny and shrunken as a result. Or cute, depending on your point of view. We've already seen this effect in commercial oyster beds in the United States, where marine farmers have had to stop growing young oysters in seawater because their shells could no longer form properly in the increasingly acidic seas, says marine biologist Professor Jason Hall Spencer of Plymouth University in Britain. As the oceans get even more acidic, the problem of species shrinkage will become more and more common. It's the Lilliput effect, he says. It's a clear warning of the dangers we're facing. Scientists estimate the oceans absorb around a million tons of carbon dioxide every hour. Our seas have become 30% more acidic than they were a century ago. Ocean acidification is nothing new. During the Permian extinction 252 million years ago, an event linked to soaring atmospheric CO2 levels triggered by volcanoes, swaths of species were wiped out both on land and on sea, and many of the marine creatures that survived were greatly reduced in size. I.e., they're cuter. And a new NASA study finds the last remaining section of Antarctica's Larsen B ice shelf, which partially collapsed in 2002, is quickly weakening and likely to disintegrate completely, before the end of the, of the decade. So if you want to see the ice shelf, 
Make your plans now. A team led by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena found the remnant of the Larsen B ice shelf is flowing faster, becoming increasingly fragmented and developing large cracks. I know the feeling. Two of its tributary glaciers are also flowing faster and thinning rapidly. These are warning signs that the remnant is discriminating, says the scientist who's leading the team. Although it's fascinating scientifically to have a front row seat to watch the ice shelf becoming unstable and breaking up, he says... It's bad news for our planet. This ice shelf has existed for at least 10,000 years, and soon it will be gone. Unquote. Planet will be okay. It's just us he's worried about. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of the broadcast. And finally, this week, news of secrets. Secrets no more. Internal FBI documents show for the first time that agents have been closely monitoring anti-Keystone pipeline activists in violation of the FBI's own guidelines designed to prevent the agency from becoming unduly involved in sensitive political issues. The documents obtained by the British newspaper The Guardian revealed that one FBI investigation run from its Houston field office amounted to, quote, substantial noncompliance, unquote, of Justice Department rules that govern how the agency handles sensitive matters. One FBI memo setting out the rationale for investigating campaigners in Houston touted the economic advantages of the pipeline while labeling its opponents environmental extremists. The Keystone Pipeline is vital to the security and economy of the United States, says the FBI document. More than 80 pages of previously confidential FBI files were obtained by The Guardian under the Freedom of Information Act. Why does the Freedom of Information Act hate freedom? Ladies and gentlemen, that is going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org, available via stitcher.com for your smartphone. And available as a free podcast from iTunes, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and TuneIn.com. And it'll be just like sending a lot of cash to ISIS to chill them. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program 
Yes, there's still email. You can email me. The playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts. Check those out. All available at harryshearer.com. And as you may have noticed this week, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station for the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from Newcastle. Yeah.